Part Three of The Little Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Snow Queen and Other Stories by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. B. Paul. The Little Mermaid, Part Three. It is one of those splendid sights which we can never see on earth. The walls and the ceiling of the large ballroom were of thick but transparent crystal. Many hundreds of colossal shells, some of a deep red, others of a grass-green, stood on each side in rows, with blue fire in them which lighted up the whole saloon and shone through the walls so that the sea was also illuminated. Innumerable fishes, great and small, swam past the crystal walls. On some of them the scales glowed with a purple brilliancy, and on others they shone like silver and gold. Through the halls flowed a broad stream, and in it danced the mermen and the mermaids, to the music of their own sweet singing. No one on earth has such a lovely voice as theirs. The little mermaid sang more sweetly than them all. The whole court applauded her with hands and tails, and for a moment her heart felt quite gay, for she knew she had the loveliest voice of any on earth or in the sea. But soon she thought again of the world above her, for she could not forget the charming prince, nor her sorrow that she had not an immortal soul like his. Therefore she crept away silently out of her father's palace, and while everything within was gladness and song, she sat in her own little garden, sorrowful and alone. Then she heard the bugle sounding through the water and thought, He is certainly sailing above. He on whom my wishes depend, and in whose hands I should like to place the happiness of my life. I will venture all for him, and to win an immortal soul. When my sisters are dancing in my father's palace, I will go to the sea witch, of whom I have always been so much afraid, but she can give me counsel and help. And then the little mermaid went out from her garden and took the road to the foaming whirlpools, behind which the sorceress lived. She had never been that way before, neither flowers nor grass grew there. Nothing but bare, grey, sandy ground stretched out to the whirlpool, where the water, like foaming millwheels, whirled round everything that it seized and cast it into the phantomless deep. Through the midst of these crushing whirlpools the little mermaid was obliged to pass, to reach the dominions of the sea witch and also for a long distance the only road lay right across the quantity of a warm bubbling mire, called by the witch at Hurfmoor. Beyond this stood her house, in the centre of a strange forest, in which all the trees and flowers were polypi, half animals and half plants. They looked like serpents with a hundred heads growing out of the ground. The branches were long slimy arms, with fingers like flexible worms, moving limb after limb from the root to the top. All that could be reached in the sea they seized upon and held fast, so that it never could escape from their clutches. The little mermaid was so alarmed at what she saw that she stood still and her heart beat with fear, and she was very nearly turning back. But she thought of the prince and of the human soul for which she longed, and her courage returned. She fastened her long flowing hair around her head, so that the polypi might not seize hold of it. She laid her hands together across her bosom, and then she darted forward as a fish should through the water, between the supple arms and fingers of the ugly polypi, which were stretched out on each side of her. She saw that each held in its grasp something it had seized with its numerous little arms, as if they were iron bands, the white skeletons of human beings who had perished at sea and had sunk into the deep waters, skeletons of land animals, oars rather than chests of ships, were lying tightly grasped by their clinging arms. Even the little mermaid, whom they had caught and strangled, and this seemed the most shocking of all to the little princess. She now came to a space of marshy ground in the wood, where large fat water snakes were rolling in the mire, 
and showing their ugly trip-colored bodies. In the midst of this spot stood a house, built with the bones of shipwrecked human beings. There sat the sea-witch, allowing a toad to eat from her mouth, just as people sometimes feed a canary with a piece of sugar. She called the ugly water-snakes her little chickens, and allowed them to crawl all over her bosom. "'I know what you want,' said the sea-witch. "'It is very stupid of you, but you shall have your way, and it will bring you to sorrow, my pretty princess.' You want to get rid of a fish's tail and to have two supports instead of it, like human beings on earth, so that the young prince may fall in love with you, and that you may have an immortal soul. And then the witch laughed so loud and disgustingly that the toad and the snakes fell to the ground and lay there wriggling about. You are but just in time, said the witch, for after sunrise tomorrow I should not be able to help you till the end of another year. I will prepare a draft for you, with which you must swim to land tomorrow before sunrise, and sit down on the shore and drink it. Your tail will then disappear and shrink up into what mankind calls legs, and you will feel great pain as if a sword were passing through you. But all who see you will say that you are the prettiest little human being they ever saw. You will still have the same floating gracefulness of movement, and no dancer will ever tread so lightly, but at every step you take it will feel as if you are treading upon sharp knives and that the blood must flow. If you will be all this, I will help you. Yes, I will, said the little princess in a trembling voice, as she thought of the prince and the immortal soul. But think again, said the witch, for when once your shape has become like a human being, you can no more be a mermaid. You will never return through the water to your sisters or to your father's palace again, and if you do not win the love of the prince so that he is willing to forget his father and mother for your sake and to love you with his whole soul, and to allow the priest to join your hands, so that you may be man and wife, then you will never have an immortal soul. The first morning after he marries another, your heart will break, and you will become foam on the crest of the waves. I will do it, said the little mermaid, and she became as pale as death. But I must be paid also, said the witch, and it is not a trifle that I ask. You have the sweetest voice of any who dwell here in the depths of the sea, and you believe that you will be able to charm the prince with it also but this voice you must give to me. The best thing you possess I will have for the price of my draft. My own blood must be mixed with it, that it may be as sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take away my voice, said the little mermaid, what is left for me? Your beautiful form, your graceful walk, and your expressive eyes. Surely with these you can enchain a man's heart. Well, have you lost your courage? Put out your little tongue, that I may cut it off as my payment. Then you shall have your powerful draught. It shall be, said the little mermaid. Then the witch placed the cauldron on the fire to prepare the magic draught. Cleanliness is a good thing, said she, scouring the vessel with snakes, which she had tied together in a large knot. Then she pricked herself in the breast and let the black blood drop into it. The steam that rose formed itself into such horrible shapes that no one could look at them without fear. Every moment the witch threw something into the vessel and when it began to boil, the sound was like the weeping of a crocodile. When at last the magic draught was ready, it looked like the clearest water. There it is for you, said the witch. And then she cut off the mermaid's tongue, so that she became dumb, and would never again speak or sing. If the polypi should seize hold of you as you return through the wood, said the witch, throw over them a few drops of the potion, and their fingers will be torn into a thousand pieces. But the little mermaid had no occasion to do this for the polypi sprang back in terror when they caught sight of the glittering draught, which shone in her hand like a twinkling star. 
So she passed quickly through the wood and the marsh, and between the rushing whirlpools. She saw that in her father's palace the torches in the ballroom were extinguished, and all within asleep. But she did not venture to go into them, for now she was dumb and going to leave them forever. She felt as if her heart would break. She stole into the garden and took a flower from the flower-beds of each of her sisters, kissed her hand a thousand times toward the palace, and then rose through the dark blue waters. The sun had not risen when she came in sight of the princess palace and approached the beautiful marble steps. But the moon shone clear and bright. Then the little mermaid drank her magic draught, and it seemed as if a twitched sword went through her delicate body. She fell into a swoon and lay like one dead. When the sun arose and shone over the sea, she recovered and felt a sharp pain, but just before her stood the handsome young prince. He fixed his coal-black eyes upon her so earnestly that she cast down her own, and then became aware that her fish's tail was gone, and that she had as pretty a pair of white legs and tiny feet as any little maiden could have. But she had no clothes, so she wrapped herself in her long thick hair. The prince asked who she was and where she came from, and she looked at him mildly and sorrowfully with her deep blue eyes, but she could not speak. Every step she took was as the witch had said it would be. She felt as if treading upon the points of needles or sharp knives, but she bore it willingly and stepped as lightly by the prince's side as a soap bubble, so that he and all who saw her wondered at her graceful swaying movements. She was very soon arrayed in costly robes of silk and muslin, and was the most beautiful creature in the palace, but she was dumb and could neither speak nor sing. Beautiful female slaves, dressed in silk and gold, stepped forward and sang before the prince and his royal parents. One sang better than all the others, and the prince clapped his hands and smiled at her. This was great sorrow to the little mermaid. She knew how much more sweetly she herself could sing once, and she thought, Oh, if he could only know that! I have given away my voice forever to be with him. The slaves next performed some pretty fairy-like dances to the sound of the beautiful music. Then the little mermaid raised her lovely white arms, stood on the tips of her toes, and glided over the floor, and danced as no one yet had been able to dance. At each moment her beauty became more revealed, and her expressive eyes appealed more directly to the heart than the songs of the slaves. Everyone was enchanted, especially the prince, who called her his little foundling, and she danced again quite readily to please him, though each time her foot touched the floor it seemed as if she trod on sharp knives. The prince said she should remain with him always, and she received permission to sleep at his door on a velvet cushion. He had a page's dress made for her that she might accompany him on horseback. They rode together through the sweet scented woods where the green boughs touched their shoulders, and the little birds sang among the fresh leaves. She climbed with the prince to the tops of high mountains, and although her tender feet bled so that even her steps were marked, she only laughed and followed him till they could see the clouds beneath them looking like a flock of birds travelling to distant lands. While at the prince's palace and with all the household were asleep, she would go and sit on the broad marble steps, for it eased her burning feet to bathe them in the cold sea water, and then she thought of all those below in the deep. Once during the night her sisters came up, arm in arm, singing sorrowfully, as they floated on the water. She beckoned to them, and then they recognized her, and told her how she had grieved them. After that they came to the same place every night, and once she saw in the distance her old grandmother, who had not been to the surface of the sea for many years, and told seeking her father with his crown on his head. They stretched out their hands towards her, but they did not venture so near to the land as her sisters did. End of part three of the Little Mermaid. Recording by Ellie, 
in July 2012.